I'm Nick Turzo, and you are listening to The Radical. Something new this week, as my guest is one of the most accomplished television composers in history. Having contributed to 75 primetime TV shows and having composed 44 theme songs for shows we all love, such as Will and Grace, The Hughleys, and of course, Seinfeld. 23 years after Seinfeld's last episode, he releases the Seinfeld soundtrack this month, which contains 33 tracks of the show's most memorable music moments. Composer Jonathan Wolf comes aboard to discuss the origin story of the classic Seinfeld theme, how he balanced his productivity and creativity working on so many sitcoms simultaneously, and the value of having a solid business plan. Coming up, my conversation with Jonathan Wolf. Hi, Jonathan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. I'm so glad to be here. Well, this is a huge privilege for me because your work uh, took up such an important part of my life in the 90s, it feels like. So it's nice to finally have a conversation. I'm so happy. Yeah, I was in charge of the music. I turned that mother out. <laughs> you did. And I do want to talk a little bit about your productivity because it seemed like it was off the hook for a while. I don't know how you did it. Um, so, but today, you know, let's start, let's focus with the topic at hand today, which is after the show being off the air for 23 years, uh, we're finally getting a Seinfeld uh, soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, often, Soundtrack albums include brilliant masterpieces of musical artistry and compelling, momentous film score suites. Yeah, Nick, there'll be none of that. My opus magnum is a big daddy pimp walk. This music was created to peg the funny meters. Each track, hopefully, will evoke a favorite scene. And that it did. And there's 33 uh, cues or tracks, let's call them, for, mm -hmm. since it's now a, a streaming piece. Um, and they do that. Each one is just remarkable. I mean, look, some of these we'll get into because some were like, I don't remember that so good. Um, uh, so maybe that wasn't there. Maybe that was. And as a composer in general, like before we kind of get into the soundtrack, um, you know, it's such a serious profession. Um, do you find that, like having to do some silly things in here was any kind of a demeaning part of a composing career? <laughs> are you kidding? That Those are my most fun assignments. The, the soundtrack, my hopes are that instead of doing critical listening and analysis, which a lot of soundtracks require, that people will have fun with this album. Play it at a Seinfeld theme party. Get jiggy with it. You know, with my there's that sexy, throbbing, erotic boombox music for the underwear George photo shoot. Yeah, play it loud while creating your own lover boy photo shoot for Instagram and TikTok. I want to see those. And when you're listening to the jazz tracks. Remember why John was unable to perform in the final scene of the Rye. Were those on, on the on the John Germain saxophone tracks per se? 
One, I mean, I assume you used real musicians for that, not sampling. Oh, yeah. Two, yeah. were they in the episodes? I don't remember the saxophone being that present. Or was it because it was... Uh, tell me. In the original script, Carol Liefer had written in several longer scenes in the jazz club for which we were going to need serious performances from John Germain. She kind of wanted to establish that this guy was a real killer. This guy was a serious jazz respected musician. And so she had written these scenes. So I immediately, you know, with my script in hand, write the music, set up the recording date. And I called three of my dearest friends. We've we're still friends 40 plus years. And we recorded this jazz seriously. Uh, it features, of course, the sax, as you mentioned, who is Bob Shepard. And the drummer is my friend Bob Leatherbarrow. And the guitarist is my friend Jamie Glazer. I played bass. And so, yes, we honored Carol's request to make it killer. Now, some of those scenes went bye-bye. So you only hear the tail end of the music in the actual episode. And of course, in the final scene, after John Germain has added to his repertoire, he can't play the sax anymore. So <laughs> you hear that. That's not on the soundtrack. What you're hearing on the soundtrack are those recordings that were made before he added to his repertoire. <laughs> That's brilliant. So let's talk about some of the challenges, especially on this particular show. Um, are you giving are given scripts like far enough in advance to make this stuff work? Is it all? Is it a fire drill or? How did most kind of weeks go down for you? The department heads will get a heads up when there's special material about a week before the read. Uh, for example, art department had to know that there was going to be a jazz club so that they could build a jazz club. And Carol had called me and kind of warned me about this jazz thing and asked if I was up for it. And yeah, my background, a lot of my training as a child, adolescent, teen were strictly jazz. So I was totally into it. Uh, so I had a heads up on it. We all get a final script the night before the table read and the production meeting. So I got that script. I, th I think our table reads were on a Wednesday and we shot on a Tuesday. So I got that script Tuesday night. And I went ahead and wrote the music Tuesday night and set up the recording session for Wednesday afternoon. So it, in some ways, there's a fire drill to it. But in other ways, I, I was not surprised to see that. Now, sometimes as the week goes on, they don't shoot that first script ever. It gets revised and rewritten and restaged every day until shoot day when it's finally ready. So you got to kind of read each script carefully to make sure they didn't throw a curve into the script for whatever department you're head of. Uh, in my case, it was the opposite. I saw scenes go bye-bye. Mm. Mm. And did you, let's go back to this. Like, how did you first become engaged with this? I understand it was kind of an unusual introduction, um, which I found kind of fascinating that I didn't know. So Hollywood is a union town. 
And so when any combination of important elements goes up, has a contract renewal, directors, writers, actors, teamsters, it's a perfect storm that might end up in an industry-wide strike. And it happened every few years. So I had this thing I did. I would just leave town and use other skills from my bag of tricks. I'd go to Vegas and write Vegas shows and conduct them and wait for the strike to be over. Two of my Vegas acts, Tom Jones and Diana Ross, shared the same opening act. Brilliant comic named George Wallace. George and I became friends. I wrote songs for his act and came out and you know accompanied him during the warm-up. And he and I remained friends so that years later, this turned up. Jerry Seinfeld in real life, has a best friend named George. It's George Wallace. Jerry was having trouble with music for his pilot at the time called the Seinfeld Chronicles. And Jerry complained to his friend George, who said, call my buddy Wolf. And that is how I met Jerry Seinfeld. Wow. It's interesting because you kind of almost... And maybe you're a comedian at heart. Um, <laughs> you seem to have like have an affinity for that, or I mean, you seem to communicate in what they need. Um, Seinfeld was very unique, though, right? It was a, you know, it was almost sometimes off-putting some of those beats that broke in there, and um, I mean, used a lot of human sounds. There's different tonalities. Um, oh, in the theme, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Well, okay, let's go there. Jerry called me. And in that phone call, he described to me the opening of his proposed series in which Jerry does stand-up material related to that episode storylines in front of an audience. And people laugh. And to go with that, he wanted theme music. I immediately said, Jerry, this sounds like a sound design issue. It's not a really music assignment. It's a recipe for an audio conflict. So how about this? How about we treat your human voice telling jokes as the melody for the Seinfeld theme? Every time you do a different monologue, it'll be a variation on the theme. My job, Jerry, will be to accompany you in a musical way that does not interfere with the audio of your stand-up routine. And yet... We'll give the show a signature, an identifiable sonic brand. Maybe the human organic nature of your voice telling jokes will go well with the organic nature of my human lips, tongue, finger snaps. And I had his attention. This was 89. Sampling technology was in its infancy, and I was really, really into it. And I just really wanted to use it. So I said, Jerry, come on over. It was a Saturday. I was there by myself at my office. And come on over. I'll show you. Bring me some video to work with. And he brought me over some video of him doing stand-up. And so I built this music around his voice in the video, the slap bass. First of all, slap bass had not yet enjoyed celebrity status as a solo instrument. It was 
buried in funk music. I brought it forward, illuminated it, and did terrible things to it as far as sound manipulation and sample editing and made it sound kind of weird and nasal. And I kept it mostly in a frequency range that did not interfere with the audio of his voice. And more importantly, the bass line itself was so simple, so basic, that it did not require meter, did not require four beats to the bar. It could start and stop to allow for the timings of his jokes and his punchlines. And I used it like modular Lego style musical elements to build each piece of music for each monologue around his voice. I knew that this was going to make me do this every week, but it's okay. It was a fun assignment and I could use the sampling technology. Uh, and that is how the Seinfeld theme was born. Right. And for those samples, I mean, were those generic samples or they're created by wow. musicians that you definitely. It's funny. <laughs> There, there's a whole universe of amateur internet wonks out there who swear with absolute certainty <laughs> that, I don't know, there seems to be camps. There's there's a bunch of them that say, oh, that was a DX7 patch, or that was a, an M1 or a base 360s. It doesn't matter. At that level of production, I'm not buying a keyboard and taking it out of the box and hitting a preset. It was that sound for Seinfeld was Frankenstein engineered. It, you know, I <laughs> did sampled multiple bass guitars. And I used sample edits, compression, EQ, phase manipulation, gain staging. I triggered the notes using a keyboard controller, which to some of these nice wonks viewing the interview videos is sometimes confused with the actual source. No synth for you. <laughs> In fact, there were multiple Seinfeld bass hybrids throughout the show. It became a thing around my office for my staff to leave me gift bass samples to weave into those Seinfeld cues so that the Seinfeld sound could evolve over time. Pass the word. Nick. <laughs> Were those cues uh, like, especially, you know, in between scenes, you know, where you had that cue and you'd have the bass kind of come in to define the transition to the next scene. I mean, was that done before in TV like that? Or is that something totally new? Exactly. See what I could do. <laughs> um, well, the music transitions between scenes on sitcoms is nothing new. They were doing that in live TV. They were doing that on I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners. But um, that the sound was designed to be a sonic brand, I thought was kind of unique. Uh, what I really wanted was to create an earworm so unique, so special and identifiable that people from another room with their head in the refrigerator would hear it and a Pavlovian response would occur. Ooh, that's Seinfeld. Let's watch. It worked. Gosh, it trained I'm us grateful. all. So thank you. What was that? 170 episodes, 171 or 180. something? 180 episodes. So it worked. It definitely got into our brains. Um, 
through your class. I mean, are you classically trained? You're self-taught? Yeah. Classically? No, my my earliest training was conservatory. Got it. And so, yeah, all the masters. And uh, that's where I got first introduced to orchestration and conducting. Uh, And then later, other teachers, I had wonderful training. I was very blessed. There was no one in my family who was artistic. There were no musicians, but they were very supportive. And so I got really, really excellent training. So by the time I was 17 and left for Hollywood, I was fully ready to start my career. And in fact, Hollywood welcomed me. I became, as soon as I landed there, I started working really, really long hours for 10 years. I did 100 100 hour plus hours as a Swiss Army multi-purpose utility tool for musical chores. The studios loved having a utility guy who could, they could throw anything that smelled like music at me. And I would say, yes. And I did that for 10 years and it worked well. And I made lots of money and I'm two big houses in LA full of gear, but it was not a well-managed career, Nick. Every time the phone rang, that phone dictated to me where to go, what to do when I got there. I had no real control over the course of my career and more importantly, the trajectory. Where was it heading? What I really wanted was a job where I could create excellent music using only the finest, newest bleeding edge technology and working with LA's finest studio musicians and singers who were my coworkers for those 10 years and in a beautiful space. And since that job was not in sight, I created it for myself. I sold everything, all my investments, all my house, everything. And I bought a building, a commercial building in Burbank on Burbank Boulevard, right in the heart of studio district. And in that building, I built that job for myself. And I contacted all these nice folks, the music departments and the other composer, everybody who had been so kind and generous and supportive for those 10 years and had trusted me with their assignments. I wrote them letters. These are letters with stamps and envelopes because there was no email yet. And I said, thank you for that support. Now stop that. I'm no longer available for those assignments. I am a composer. Here's my new business. Let's do business. And then I held my breath, Nick, because I may have just nuked my whole career, you know, 10 years scorched earth. But that's not what's ha- what happened. As those letters arrived at their destinations all over Hollywood, little switches flipped and people shrugged and said, gee, that's too bad. He was a good utility guy. Okay. And they started throwing me assignments, songwriting assignments and special material assignments, things that credit composers didn't really want or a series that were troublesome for whatever reason. And I, I started with those. And if you look at my credits list from the beginning, it's a long death list of failed series titles, but that's okay. It was a start. Mm. That's fascinating. I didn't know you kind of threw down on yourself like that and had a critical kind of juncture like that where you said, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, de- I declared myself 
a composer. You can't really declare yourself a brain surgeon. People frown. But I declared myself a composer and the world said, okay. And that is how my full-time composing career was launched. That's fascinating. And so, you know, these TV shows, right? You kind of have a, uh, that's your medium, let's say, right? Yeah. It wasn't films per se. And you may have done some films, but it's TV mainly, right? Um, Correct. Having a conservatory background and stuff, how did you transition into like, you know, there's so many different styles needed and genres needed. Where did that come? What was the basis for that? What was your reference for that? Um, My background was eclectic, even, and I started young. Growing up in Louisville, Kentucky, which was at the time a rather small pond, gave me opportunities to work at a professional level when I was really, really young. Uh, So I was, well, first of all, I I had to join the union when I was 13 because I was doing radio spots and TV commercials. I was conducting beauty pageants and talent shows and doing variety. And uh, I was a musical director for a local opera company and for a theater company. I got a lot of experience at a very young age in a lot of different styles of music. And it prepared me. It was all on-the-job training for what would come next. Wow. That's fascinating. So, like, on Seinfeld, um, you know, like when a song would come up, right? Like the Elaine thing with, you know, was it Jesus in One or something song that was on the radio? <laughs> like, do you write that song? Yeah, Who's singing on it? Are you that, singing on it? Who? What is that? <laughs> the, the uh, like, at my company... I had almost no turnover. I had the same people for many, many years. And the person singing on Jesus is One is my genius music editor, Jack Diamond. (laughs) Oops, sorry, that was a mistake. Jesus is One, Jesus is All. Jesus, pick me up when I fall. Yeah, uh, Elaine was very surprised to hear that coming out of Putty's radio. (laughs) Now, for years, really nice folks have written to me saying, where can I buy that song? (laughs) And that is reason enough for me to have included it on the Seinfeld soundtrack album. If people, if it reminds someone of a funny scene or something that means something to them, or maybe uh, the Jesus is one message rings true to them. I'm going to put it on the album and let people enjoy. Thanks for asking about that. Well, I was just curious because that's transitioning to like songwriting and stuff. I was curious how you, yeah. how you put that together. Um, songwriting was one of, was, was clearly near the top of my bag of tricks uh, it sustained me for many years that during those chores years, uh, they would call on me to write songs a lot. It was just one of something that I had a good skill at. I was fast at it. So I've got several hundred songs hmm. in TV shows and movies. And occasionally when a theme needed to be a song, 
it was good to put those skills to use. Like what would be like in Seinfeld, Jen, everything seemed like it was kind of, um, it's not so orchestrated, right? You know, once a friend took me to see Elf Clausen do, you know, the Simpsons, right? So I'd see yeah. Elf do that. By the way, his son was on my staff. Oh, was he really? Yeah, Alf called me and he said, look, I got this teenager who wants to be in music and there's some things dads just can't do with their sons. Could you train my son? Wow. So, uh, so Alf called me and asked me if I could train his son, Scott. He was in high school at the time. Sure, come on over. And when he went away to college, we said goodbye. And about 10 minutes later, he was through with college. <laughs> Four years had whizzed by. And so I hired Scott right out of college to be on my team. So that's amazing. Alf and I have have a, a real strong bond there. We share a son. But it was fun. There's, what a George, there's a George Wallace joke about that. Go with, ahead. With he and Jerry Seinfeld. When people ask about ask him about that. He said, Yeah, Jerry's my best friend. I I was best man at his wedding. I fathered his children. <laughs> oh boy. So where I was going, there was, you know, I was, so I go see the Simpsons scoring, right? And it's like at a big room at Fox Orchestra. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of like a little taken back. Like, wait a minute, it's an animated show. Look, look at the work going into this musically. Um, what was a piece there? Like where you had the most, like where you had to like, orchestrate the biggest piece is it like the nixon walk that they did you know or noxon as you called it um yeah that that was a good assignment it's beautiful where morty seinfeld had been impeached and he left del boca vista with regal dignity so i treated it seriously with this music and a lot of my training, as you know, was orchestral. I spent a lot of those first 10 years on podiums doing orchestral shows. And in fact, on that Fox stage, I scored a lot of stuff. Um, when I started my company, I knew that I needed to have control over the budgets. So I committed to doing self-contained production at my office. And that, except for a few times when, as a favor, I conducted this, the film scores for friends so that they could be in the booth, I pretty much stayed off of podiums from that mm. point out. Interesting. Thanks for asking about that particular piece of music. It was a nice moment where they let the music just speak. It was beautiful. That's somber. Worked perfectly. Perfect cue. Uh Thank you. And there were, there were a number of times. For example... It became a recurring comedy trope in Seinfeld to have chase scenes. And I would score these chase scenes if they, as if they were serious, like you mentioned, uh, Alf. He did that on The Simpsons. He scored seriously. And it the counterpoint to the ridiculous comedy on screen made it even funnier. It heightened the comedy. And I did the same thing with, um, for example, this was from the cable guy chasing <laughs> Kramer in the Cadillac part two, which is one of my favorite chases. But we did them a lot. There was, uh, oh, there was the Jerry chasing Newman. 
Which I scored kind of silly, Mission Impossible style. Um, there, it, it was a, a wonderful little bit that we did. Uh, George being chased by the geriatric scooter gang, <laughs> <laughs> the German tourist chasing Kramer in a scene from Marathon Man. I think we did it. We did a lot of those too. A lot of movie pastiche scenes, and often, well, like. Dixon, like you mentioned, where it was an homage to a an epic scene from a movie. So I got to do a lot of that, and there a lot of them are on the soundtrack album because they point back to a happy memory from Seinfeld. Like the there was that one scene. I was really happy when Jay Peterman came on board. Uh he and I, the John O'Hurley and I were already co-workers at the time on a wonderful series called Dave's World. That whole cast and crew was like family. So it was fun to welcome John onto Seinfeld as Jay Peterman. There was one really, really weird scene with Jay Peterman where he had disappeared into the Burmese jungle. <laughs> Elaine had to go find him in a cave, and it was like the scene from Apocalypse Now. So I scored it like this. It was so surreal, mind-bending, uncomfortable that I did this for the music in the scene. Would they ever play the scene to the music or not? That was all in post. Okay. That particular scene was in yeah, post. I was just curious. Everything we've mentioned so far has been in post. When the music was part of the action, then either I would be on set to do it live or they would use playback for it for whatever reason. Some of my favorite memories from Seinfeld include on-set chores. For example, I got to go on set during the Jimmy and accompany Mel Torme on piano as he sang oh, that's awesome. to Kramer. And then on the Pez Dispenser, I performed the Beethoven Piano Sonata. <laughs> oh, man. All right, I'll come up with an example of when they used playback on the show where they I, I recorded it in advance and they played back. For example, this one. Larry called me and told me that we're doing a musical of Rochelle Rochelle. And I needed to write the opening scene for it. And I said, okay, how long do you want this piece of music to last? And he goes, oh, it doesn't matter. The actor, the understudy is going to be too weepy to finish the song. <laughs> Still, I, I included it on the soundtrack just because it's a really funny moment. The truth is, a lot of Seinfeld fans are not old enough to have a clear memory of Tanya Harding crying about her boot laces or skate laces at the Olympics. So for those folks, this scene with the understudy crying about her boot laces is just another funny moment about nothing. It is. 
Do you sense, I mean, did you get a sense? My personal, this is just one man's opinion. I, I sense that Jerry and Larry really have no musical DNA in them because they're such serious comedians that they don't seem to have that in them. Do you, can you counter you think that? so, but <laughs> yeah, Larry David is a very musical guy. Totally. Wow. He's well-schooled, well-educated. He knows music. He knows... Uh, we would, at the mix, Jerry and Larry came to every mix. I don't know when these guys slept. But uh, until Jerry, you know, Jerry, uh, Larry left the show after season seven. But up to that point, he was at every mix. And, of course, I was at every mix. So occasionally when the dialogue guys were busy editing or whatever, we'd slip into the other room where there was a piano and I'd play piano and Larry would try and stump the band. It was, it was fun. Wow. Yeah. So Larry is a very musical yeah. guy. I would, yeah, give, I would give, he, he knows a lot of music. Jerry had never really came up. So you might be right about Jerry, but the, the Broadway music thing, Larry kind of leaned toward mm. that style of music. And I'm glad I got to I actually wrote <laughs> fake but i wrote a tony award-winning theme for scarsdale surprise hit the fake tony awards <laughs> Yeah, the, the Summer of George episode is the closest that piece of music is ever going to get to the real Tony Awards. <laughs> the Summer of George. Um, yeah, with fake producers and fake, as, as Elaine might say, fake, 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 fake. So let me ask you, how does, uh, and this is more of a technical question, how, how does uh, mm -hmm. this material become available to use like in a soundtrack now? I mean, doesn't somebody, does Sony own it? Does, does Castle Rock, you know, that's part of Sony now, right? Who owned the actual catalog? Do you own it? Castle Rock was absorbed into a deal with Warner, with Time Warner. And now they are owned by Warner Brothers, including the entire Seinfeld catalog and the music for it. This record, this Seinfeld soundtrack album that I really, really am looking forward to all Seinfeld fans acquiring uh, is released by a Warner label. Water Tower Records is Warner Brothers soundtrack label. Right. Okay. That makes sense. I had it. So they didn't need anybody's permission. Uh, Steve Winogradsky, your friend and mine, hammered out a deal with them to allow for this so that I get to get paid as the composer and artist and songwriter and producer of the soundtrack right. album. But it's their album. Are they doing anything cool aside from like putting it on streaming platforms? I mean, are there like physical vinyl packages? Are there special editions? Are they doing anything around that? Nick, that's all above the my fans favorite. would love that. So I'm with you. I agree with that. Uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I really, really hope it comes out on vinyl. I think that would be a wonderful gift item for your Seinfeld fan relatives or friends. Uh, they're probably going to see how well it does on this digital release. Does it have legs? Does it get traction? And if Seinfeld fans show up for it in digital form, I'm sure they will put out a physical mm. 
version of it. I think that's their uh, winner, winner, chicken dinner. If they did that, so um, I would. Uh, boy, I would love that. Then I could sign records for people. I'd be happy to do that. Anyone, anyone who cares enough about Seinfeld, who quotes Seinfeld, who loves Seinfeld, and buys his record, send it to me. I'll sign it. That's awesome. So let me ask you back to your kind of career in general, um, your output. Um, you know, I was going through IMDb, kind of looking through all the credits and stuff. And I mean, it looked like from 98 to like 2006, you were juggling a lot of shows. Um, I was the composer on 75 primetime network TV series. How, what were your, what was your life like? I mean, that's a lot of, well, you don't get that. You don't get that number by doing them one at a time. <laughs> so yeah, right. I was usually in general about 10 episodes a week, different shows. Wow. So my life was pretty much create music, record music, maybe take a nap, create more music. I had very little life beyond that. Maybe it's born of those lean years as a musician when you take any job you can because you want to make sure you have enough money to pay your rent. I took all these jobs. It was my disease. I just hoarded all these jobs and did all the music. And the truth is, sometimes it amazed me that I'm picking up the phone and answering another call. And I actually said this once because I was tired and my filters were not fully functioning. I said, you know, I have 12 shows on the air right now. You really want to be number 13? Mm. Wow. <laughs> they said, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, yeah, people kept calling and I kept saying yes. And I just held the bag and took the money. How many of those are like yeah. themes, like actual themes? 44. 44 themes. Name a few. That's a really, really astute question, Nick, because a lot of journalists, and you're a journalist now, uh, make that mistake. And they say, oh, you wrote 75 themes. I did not, because a number of my shows famously had themes that I did not write, like Married with Children. Love and Marriage was written before I was born. Yeah, that was Sammy Kahn, right? Correct. You know, and what a great pairing to it really helped identify that series which by the way was a really fun job for me i loved working on married with children let's go there my first assignment on married with children the show had already been on for a couple of seasons and i was just becoming flavor of the month which lasted 10 years by the way but i was getting hot and married with children hired me for one assignment a songwriting assignment for a particular episode of Married with Children called Rock of Ages. It was the era of We Are the World. Now, you and I probably remember that era, and it's a wonderful song and for a wonderful cause and has all good fuzzies about it. But if we're going to be honest, we were sick of that song. You couldn't go into a gas station or a restaurant, bathroom, didn't matter. You heard that song over and over again at the time married with children had a little job to do which was later taken over by shows like south park and that job was to lampoon parts of society that took themselves too seriously so they decided to have an episode where they invited all those rock legends who were not invited onto <laughs> we are the world these are funny. These guys were at Woodstock 
And um, they hired me to write the song called We Are the Old. <laughs> it was just really wacky, funny stuff. And we all had such a good time. And I got, you know, Richie Havens was on it and John Sebastian and Robbie Krieger and Spencer Davis. It was, it was a really good crew that came and sang this silly song I wrote. And everybody had such a good time that Married with Children hired me to continue on with the show until the show ended as the music guy for Married with Children. So it was really fun be having access to all of these, this wide variety of shows. I, I don't even remember what your question was, Nick, but I got sidetracked. <laughs> well, by it that. was about the themes. What's interesting though, is I'll throw oh, yeah. a personal thing in there is our paths almost intersected at that point because I was at Columbia records as an A&R executive and mm -hmm. the show was so popular, right? Married with children was huge, right? With a certain segment <laughs> pictures, television, yes, yeah. that they wanted to do a soundtrack so I actually went to yeah. a couple, they did. I actually went to a couple tapings because they were considering a soundtrack for the show. It's funny. I mean, a lot of the music I created for that show was intentionally bad music. If there was a marching band on the show and that happened regularly, it was a bad marching band. We would trade instruments, you know, trumpet players playing clarinet just to make it sound awful. If that was part of the comedy of that show, I can't imagine a soundtrack of that. I, well, we didn't do it. So clearly there was no way, <laughs> there was no way to do a soundtrack. Choice. What year did you show up at Columbia? I showed up in uh, 89. Okay. I That's about when I showed up on Mary Joy. That was long after I was at, Cold Gems, Green Gems, EMI as a songwriter. Yeah. How did you, and not to go too far back in the time machine, but, you know, as a 17-year-old, like, what was your family thinking? Like, you were just going to, hey, I'm going off to L.A. and I'm going to Hollywood and uh, see ya, Kentucky. I mean, what was that like? Were they supportive? Were you just a rebellious kid? How did it, how did that transpire? I pretended to go to college. Ah, I had to, it's a long story, but it's a weird long story that somehow I happened to show up at high school the day. Remember, I was working all through high school regular. I had a, a five-nighter that I did six to eight in the restaurant and nine to one thirty in the lounge, five nights a week. Plus I had off nights at different, I had a lot of work I was doing. So I'm not really going to school a lot. And there were not computers that kept track of truancy and stuff like that. Most of the teachers knew I was the, you know, oh yeah, he's the music kid, leave him alone. Uh, but I happened to show up at school one day and they were giving out a test, the PSAT test. And okay, I'll, I'll take it. And the end of the story is that I became a national merit scholar and you can go anywhere you want. At least in those days, you could pick your school if you went the whole distance to, in the National Merit Corporation competition. And there were two schools in L.A. that kind of fit the bill, UCLA and USC. So I picked USC and pretended to go there. And that lasted a few weeks. And then I got started working, so I dropped out of school. Wow. Kids, don't do that. Wow. Well, <laughs> you know. It depends. Did that answer your question? See, my parents thought I was golf. That's top. fascinating. A little bait <laughs> and switch. Ride. 
Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, National Merit Corp was not happy with me. <laughs> That's incredible. So can you share, like, you know, with my audience, you know, a lot of musicians, songwriters, so forth. Can you kind of share maybe some of your rituals or your um, practices as a creative guy? Like, did, how have you done it at this level of such success for this many decades what are your tricks? It's what are about, your secrets? First of all, to clarify, I retired in 2005. Okay. So whatever I say now will be in the past tense. Okay, past tense then. How did uh, you do that for that? It was it it is and that's a really good question Nick and the answer is there's one word. Training. Got to get your training early. It's got to be deep. It's got to be thorough and diverse. And not only music training, yes, it's important that your songwriting, your composition and theory and orchestration and ear training, all that stuff is really, really important. But equally important, as a musician at least, is that you have a clear working understanding, a usable knowledge base of intellectual properties, copyright, licensing, contractual rights, publishing, royalties business tools that will be necessary for you to succeed in the music business. Notice it's called the music business. It's not called the music friends and family. Yeah, there is a second so, word attached to it. Yes. There's a second word. You cannot separate those two. So for me, that was a really big difference in my career in that is that I recognize that early on. I see, I saw folks like you in executive suites who really, really knew the business side of it. And I said, I want some of that. Mm. Interesting. See, one of my, well, a mentor as a child and through my teen years, a guy named Jamie Ebersold, who is a jazz legend, not for his musicianship necessarily, although he is a world-class musician, he is famous because he, created an entire system of play along records that never existed before. And I spent a lot of time in that basement. I saw how he answered the phone, how he logged everything. I was there to record, I don't know which, which volumes. And I saw how he treated his business with such seriousness. And I remember as a child saying, I want, I want that. I want a world-class musician and a world-class business person together. And I took that with me to California. Wow. That is a great lesson because I think here we talk mostly on the creative side of um, that. But there is another part of yeah. it that's equally important. There was some necessity to that because I didn't have any money. I needed to make money. You know, none of that matters if you, if you have a great trust fund. Good for you. But if you're there to make money, you need to understand all of those business concepts, entrepreneurial principles, and small business best practices in your own career. You need to have a really good business plan. Remember those 10 years of chores that I did? Yes. I lacked a business plan. And as soon as I created a business plan, I knew what I had to do. And that's when I built my company. Wow. That's incredible. So incredible. My friend, I'm not going to take any more of your time on this holiday weekend, but um, thank you so much for this. The soundtrack's out. Seinfeld soundtrack, 33 tracks. 
Look at this. I have my own custom music for this episode. This is fantastic. It's on the soundtrack. <laughs> it's all on the soundtrack. So, but thank you for sharing everything. Um, Jonathan, you're a, a wonder, uh, qu- quite a creative talent and a business talent too. So, um, Thanks for having me. And I'm excited your music finally gets out like this in a whole, in a compilation piece. Can you believe it? At my age, some of this music is 30 years old, but it's all good. And I cannot wait to see Seinfeld fans using it for fun purposes and posting their videos. Well, it's one of the classic shows of our lifetime. Um, Certainly in my life, it defined... Uh, a decade, you know, a decade of our lives, basically. Um, and uh, your music helped put that stamp on it. All right, all you Seinfeld fans, you know how to strut to this. Awesome. Thank you so much. Hi, Nick. Thanks, Jonathan. Stay healthy. Thank you for listening. This show originates from the podcast capital, Austin, Texas. My producer is Sean O'Neill. Visit theradicalpod.com for updates and even some merchandise. Also, please subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And I also ask that you please share episodes with your friends so we can continue to grow our community. See you all again next Friday.